you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Romans chapter 11. The passage tonight is Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. And uh, we do have pew Bibles, if you would like to use uh, the pew Bible in front of you, and you can find uh, our passage tonight, Romans chapter 11, on page uh, 946 there. Uh, So feel free to open up your Bibles now to Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. So you do uh, know that this is a chapter that is known to have some controversy throughout the history of Reformed thought. Um, And yet, uh, this is God's Word and uh, has much to teach us. And so my prayer is that as the next few weeks we spend a little bit of time and Romans 11, that uh, though we may not be able to unravel all the mysteries of this text, uh, yet we will be drawn ever nearer to our Savior, to the God who has loved his people. And uh, that's my prayer for all of us as we begin this passage tonight. So Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of our Lord. I ask then... Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. As far the reading of God's word, would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for giving us your word, and I pray that you would help us to understand it, and not only to understand it, but I, I do pray that you would fill our hearts with greater knowledge of you tonight. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work amongst us, so that we'd see you that we would believe in you and, O oh Christ, that we would delight in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, in my years of ministry, that makes me sound old, but it's been a little while I've been in ministry. I've, I've come across uh, a number of times uh, people who have been gripped with a, with a real and a great and a serious fear. People in the church who are terrified that though 
they may be a member of the church and are committed to it and have uh, been involved in the life of the church, the question creeps into their mind, could it be that maybe even still God might reject me? Could it be that God would reject me? And I've known people who've lost sleep who have been terrified by this. And you look at chapters like the one that we have here, and you can see uh, where these fears might uh, begin to arise. And then you have other verses, like in Matthew 21, where Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And so we see that and we wonder, could God take the kingdom of heaven away from me? Could God reject me, though I've dedicated much of my life uh, to Him and to the church? Even Paul asks that question. The Apostle Paul himself. And that's where we find ourselves in the opening of chapter 11. He asks the question at the beginning of 11 verse 1, Has God rejected His people? Now, if you're just jumping into Romans and wondering, where does this come from, Paul? Well, you can just go back and see why he asked this. Just go back one verse in front of it, uh, in front of this in Romans chapter 10. At the end of Romans 10, the, verse, the very last verse, it says this. But of Israel, God says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He's been spending time in in chapters 9 and 10 speaking of God's ancient people having rejected Him. Israel having rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for them? Does it mean that God is done with Israel forever? That's what Paul is asking. Is there any hope for this great people who had received these marvelous benefits and blessings of God? They're listed in chapter 9. The adoption, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple, the worship, the promises. God's way of salvation came through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the patriarchs, to them, to Israel, they received the covenants, and so on. And they have all these privileges, all these, 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 these wonderful blessings from God, and yet when God sends His Son, the Messiah, they've rejected Him. Does this mean then that God is done with them? That God has given up on His ancient people? This passage that we're looking at, verses 1-10, through second half of verse 1-10, through is basically... Answering that question, has God rejected His people? So we're going to look at that, and then uh, my hope and prayer is that we'll be able to see what that means for us today. So the question that Paul raises, and the question that might have been on your mind at some point in your life, and maybe even tonight, 
Has God rejected his people? Has God rejected perhaps even me? What is the answer to this question? Well, if you continue in verse 11, it starts, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And then immediately Paul says, by no means. By no means. No way, absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. But you may say, well, well, how can Paul say this? How can this be? They've rejected the Messiah. And all that he's been talking about in, in Romans. And then Paul goes on to, to point out, he said, well, there's a couple of reasons why I can say this. The first, first point is that Paul points out, God saved me. God saved Paul, and he is an Israelite. Look as he continues, by no means, in verse 1, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, if God was completely done with the Jews altogether, then Paul himself could not have been saved. Uh, He was a Hebrew among Hebrews. In fact, Paul is saying, look at me, I am a living, breathing testimony that God is still in the business of saving sinners from out of Israel. But then he points out in verses 2 through 4 a second reason why he can say God is not done with Israel. In verses 2 through 4, Paul quotes 1 Kings chapter 19. Sorry, yeah, he quotes 1 Kings chapter 19, which reads, Do you not know what the Scriptures say of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Pause there, and I just want to ask you, do you remember that story in the Old Testament? Of Elijah's situation. When Elijah says this, he's on the run. He's running away from the king Ahab who is uh, out to kill him. Ahab has had enough of Elijah and they are saying, there's a bounty on your head, we are going to kill you. And so he's running away. And probably like many of us would feel, he's feeling sorry for himself. And he's talking to the Lord about this and he says, all the people around me, the rest, they've abandoned me. God, I alone am left. I'm the only faithful one on this earth. There's no more of your people here. You may chuckle at that, but I, I, I do wonder if you've ever felt that way. Have you ever had that Elijah syndrome? And it's an easy thing to do where you are going through perhaps a difficult season and maybe the church goes through a difficult season and you look around and it just seems like, am I the only one here who's keeping the faith? I mean, it doesn't doesn't look like anyone else is standing. It's only me. God, I alone am left. What does God say to Elijah? Look at verse 4 of our text in Romans 11. But what is God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
Now, whether that's a literal 7,000 or something else, it's not really the point. What God is telling to Elijah here is he's saying, listen, Elijah, I have a people. I always have a people in my creation. I have always had a saved, elect people in the visible church, even though what you may see is corrupted. My people are still there. And so in verse 5, Paul looks at this. looks at God's response to Elijah. And he looks to the one who's asking this question, saying, but, 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 but Israel, these are God's people. Has he just left them? Has he just abandoned them? Has he just changed his mind about them? Has God rejected them? And he sees what what God says to Elijah, and then he says in verse 5, So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. At the present time, there is a remnant. You see, in the days of Elijah, though he felt alone and appeared like he was alone, and appeared like all of God's people and all of God's kings have just turned to paganism, to outright rebellion against God. He says, just as in Elijah's day, God tells him there were a people who were my people chosen by grace, so too today there are a people chosen by grace. And we ought to understand from this, so too in the future, in future days. And for us, we may find ourselves very anxious about future days. God will still have a people that belong to Him. A people who are chosen by grace. The lesson is there is and there always will be a people of God. And so the Romans 11 here is teaching us. God works by calling out of Israel a true Israel. This has always been the case. There's an appearance. These are God's people. This visible church. This visible Israel, as it were. But out of it, God has called a true Israel. A true people. A regenerate, elect people who really love the Lord. And all of this, all of this is of grace. Look at verse 6. But if it, uh, he says, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul's making a point about the grace of God. That God has always operated in saving a people by grace. And that's what he's doing today, and that's what he will always be doing. Now I say that, and you know, it's, it's easy to do when you've, you are teaching in a church and preaching in a church for a while. You start to use words, and maybe you use words with one another that become common, and you sort of forget perhaps what it really means. And grace is perhaps one of those words that we throw around a lot and, and don't fully grasp what's going on here. We can take it for granted. I mean, what is grace? Some of you could shout out, it's unmerited favor, unmerited kindness. And you'd be right. That's absolutely true. 
But I think there's more to it than that. And, and I think we're being driven to see that there's more to it uh, than that. I want to quote the, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, who's really helpful here. He writes this. He says, Grace is more than mercy and love. It super adds to them. It super adds to mercy and love. It denotes not simply love, but the love of a, of a sovereign, transcendent superior, one that may do what he will, that may wholly choose whether he will love or no. Now God, who is an infinite sovereign, who might have chosen whether he would love us or not, for him to love us, that is grace. For him to love us, that is grace. What is grace? Grace is all about God. When we think of grace, what we should be thinking about is not about me and what I get. We should be thinking about the God of grace. The one who has reached into the dark places and has pulled you out and into His kingdom of light. And that's, that's the wonder of grace, isn't it? The wonder of grace is not, it's not about me. It's about the God who gives grace. That's the wonder of grace. That God has, has loved us. That God has loved any of us. And that we can, we can hang our trust and our hope upon Him in Jesus Christ. That is, is grace. And so Paul says it's, it's always been a work of grace. It's always been a work of God in the life of his people. And so in verse 7, Paul pushes this forward and he asks another question. He says, what then? You know, what's the issue? What's, what's the problem? And he says in verse 7, what then? Well, the issue, the problem is this. Israel failed to obtain what it is seeking. Israel failed to obtain what it is seeking. That's what verse 7 tells us. And you may want to ask the question, well, what is it that Israel was seeking? What were they looking for? What did they want? When chapter 9, Romans 9 and verse 31 tells us, it says, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. What was Israel pursuing? What did they want? They, they desired this. They were seeking this out. They wanted God's approval. That's what they were going for. That's what they were seeking. That's what they were looking after. But their problem is that they pursued this by works. They're trying to climb a ladder into God's good favor. And because of that, they could not obtain it. They did not understand the wonder of grace is God, not us. It tells us as verse 7 continues, Israel failed to climb that ladder to God and His approval. But then it says... But the elect obtained it. 
The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. What do we what do we take from this? What do we to understand here? Well, I think the first thing is that God's elect has received salvation because Christ has obtained it for them. Christ has obtained it for them. Salvation, God's grace, God's favor and approval is not something that we can obtain. It's not something that we can reach to by works. It's not something that we are able to do. It is something that Christ has been able to do. Christ himself, Jesus, obtained it for them. Again, we've already seen in every age, God will call out a remnant who are chosen by grace. And they will obtain righteousness, the righteousness of God, because of the undeserved love of God in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has obtained it. And those who have come to Jesus and put their entire trust and hope in Him say, I can't obtain it. Only Jesus can do this. So Jesus, I am trusting You. My faith is in You. And so we see the grace of God there. We also see here in verse 7 that there is not only the elect who are chosen by grace, but we also see, secondly, that the rest were hardened. Verse 7 says the rest were hardened. You may say, well, who are the rest? Who are, who's everybody else? Well, it's everybody else. It's, it's the non-elect. It's those who have tried to obtain righteousness by their own works and merits and have failed. Why did they fail? It's because they were hardened. And so we come back to this hardening again. It keeps popping up since chapter 9. And it may still be on your mind from weeks ago. How is it that why would anybody have a hardened heart? Why would, why would anyone not receive the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ? Well, at the end of chapter 9, we see that those who do not receive it do not receive righteousness because they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's what verse 32 of chapter 9 says. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Christ. It can't be Him. It's got to be about me in some way. And Paul goes on to show that this has always been a problem. This is not a new situation. He quotes a number of passages in verses 8 through 10. This is sort of like a, a mashup of, of Old Testament verses that he's, he's putting together from Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29 and from Psalm 69. And so he's explaining this hardening situation and why it is the case that there are people who are hardened. And, and so when you see this in verse 7, we see... It's a passive. The rest were hardened. And we see in verse 8, they were hardened because God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. In other words, God is the one who sovereignly handed them over. God is the one who sovereignly hardened their hearts and has 
blind their eyes, and closed their ears. You may look at this and say, well, Paul is just being a bully right here. But in Matthew 13, listen to what Jesus himself says. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn that I would heal them. In other words, Jesus is helping us to understand they have failed to believe. They have failed to come to the one whom God has given for salvation. And God's response to their unbelief is to hand them over. Romans 1. To give them a spirit of stupor. And this hardening is a judgment for their unbelief. And where we should be most amazed here, perhaps even shocked, is that despite that right judgment from the holy God, he yet makes a sovereign differentiation. He makes a difference between the elect and the non-elect. That's a sovereign difference. It's a, it's, it's a decision that God makes. It's something that God is doing. And, and we need to understand that none of us deserve his favor. None of us deserve salvation. None of us deserve to be forgiven for our sins. We are all fallen in Adam. We are all sinners. And, and it's not just that you were born into it, but you do it in, with, with your own choice and with delight in your heart. You have sinned and rebelled against God. And yet despite that, God has set apart a people for Himself. And others... He passes by. And the ones he passes by, he hardens as a judgment for their unbelief. I don't know if you've noticed in the past few years, it seems like this is happening more and more in the celebrity, evangelical sphere. These celebrity evangelicals are leaving the faith. Leaving Christianity altogether. You notice this happening? Perhaps it's an author. You've read his book and taught you things about living a Christian life. Or maybe it was a, a singer in a Christian band that you used to listen to. And perhaps some of the things that he sang were really helpful for you. And then you find out in 2020 and 2021, you find these... These people are leaving Christianity, but they're not only leaving Christianity, they're announcing it all over social media, and they're going on tours, and they're actively seeking to deconstruct other people's faith. And I think about them, and I, and I can't help but wonder, how is it that their hearts have been so hardened to hate the Christ that they have benefited so much from. What has gone wrong? Well, we see in verse 9, in answer to that question, Paul quotes David, King David from Psalm 69. 
It's actually an imprecatory psalm. Um, And he says this, and David says, Let their tables become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. It's a pretty dark place to leave a passage. Should have probably kept going, but we stopped there. David here, centuries before Paul, is praying, let their table become a snare and a trap. You may wonder, well, what in the world does that mean? When you think about the table here, it's a picture. Imagine a table uh, laid out with a, with a feast. A laid out a table that's just laid out with, with God's mercies, with God's blessings laid out for people to come and enjoy. God has spread out a table of mercy in the wilderness and it's filled with His blessings. And the prayer is, let my, for my enemies and the enemies of God, may these gifts be a trap to them. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says about this, he says how easy it is that so many who have been blessed by God spiritually and materially, how the blessings of God turn into curses. How the blessings of God turn into curses. And that's what has happened to Israel. They have been blessed so richly. God has poured out His blessings upon them. But they have received those blessings lightly and thoughtlessly and with arrogance. There's a sense in which they were so close to God and yet so far from Him at the same time. Have you ever felt that way? Because this can happen to us too. We have been given abundant material blessings as a people here, sovereign grace here. And we begin to treat it as something that we've earned. I did this. I deserve this. We begin to start thinking, well, this is from me. It's not from God. And we grow in arrogance about not only what we have, but we grow in arrogance about who we are. Proverbs 30 even goes goes so far to say, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now this is just a principle. It's, It's a wonderful thing when you see people whom God has blessed greatly with material things and see them with humility and submission to Christ to continue to live in the faith and to glorify God with all that they have and to be kept from the snares and trappings of the world. But Paul is showing us here that blessings can become a snare and a trap because God gives them over to a spirit of stupor because of their unbelief. Essentially, we can have all these material blessings, all these things from God. You can enjoy you know, great Sunday school classes. You can rejoy, enjoy great theology books, a great theological education. Have all these blessings and yet have no faith in Christ at all. And to not love Christ. And the truth is, The church has always been a mixed group with regenerate and unregenerate people. And it always will be until the Lord returns in judgment. And so I'm preaching to you tonight. Do not presume that all of you 
love Christ. And for those that you, of you who do, beware. Beware that you not love the benefits of Christ more than you love Christ Himself. We need to be with one another. We need to, to have the Word of God exhorted to us and preached to us. You need one another in your lives to speak to you and to know you. To carry one another's burdens and to point each other to Christ. To remind us of the God of our salvation. But if you find yourself in a moment where you're thinking, am I alone left? Do be reminded that there always has been and always will be a people, a remnant who have been chosen by grace. But hear the warning that we not make presumptions, not to merely rest upon the signs that Christ has given to us, but not point to what not rest upon what the signs point to. Have any of you ever thought, well, I took communion, so I'm okay? I know people who have. And that's foolishness. To rest your hopes on signs and ceremonies and yet divorce it from Christ. To believe in the blessings, but not in the one who blesses. I think that's the that's the problem here that we need to be aware of. To say, you know, I, I, I know I've been baptized and so therefore I'm okay. You can be baptized and still not believe and submit to Christ. There's only one way of salvation and it is Jesus Christ. He is the one who has obtained righteousness. My friends, you are not able to. You need to run to Christ. Run to Christ. And so when you consider that question, has God rejected me? Could God reject me? I answer that with another question. I think I'm doing that a lot now, but I think it's helpful. You need to ask yourself this. Where do I rest my hope before God tonight? Where do I rest my hope? Is it that I'm reformed? That I've read really good theology? That I, you know, I've read all the works of John Owen? I'm impressed with you. It's not going to save you. Do you rely and rest upon uh, the, the fact that perhaps your parents are Christians? Or that your wife or your husband is a Christian? All of these things are wonderful blessings. They are. They're wonderful blessings. And they should be uh, rejoiced in and, and enjoyed. But if that's what you're putting your hope in for your salvation, those things will become a trap and a snare. Have you believed upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Has God given you a new heart? seeks after Christ? Have you fled to Him? Is Christ your only hope and confidence? Before you leave tonight, you need to know there is nothing else, there is no one else who will keep you and save you on the day of Christ. Let's pray. 
Our Lord in heaven, I pray that you would help us to see that you truly are the only way of salvation. And forgive us, O Lord, how we can really mix that up sometimes and confuse the blessings with the blesser. And so I pray that you would fill our hearts with the Holy Spirit, that we would see the world for what it is, that we would see ourselves for who we are, and we see Christ as the only one who is able to accomplish what is required. May we see the invitation that he gives to come to him and find rest and help us, O Lord, to believe. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.